Welcome to this brand new episode of the Great Mind series. I'm your host, Dr. Jerry Zanstra. This episode of the Great Mind series podcast is brought to you by Innoversity. Innoversity, the learning experts. We are honored today to have Heiko Fisher with us. Uh, Heiko Fisher is the founder and the CEO of Resourceful Humans. He's been in that role for uh, for more than five years. He is located in Berlin. And uh, Heiko, we are honored to have you and just uh, thrilled to hear a bit of your story and who you are and, and uh, some of the more interesting thoughts that you've had. Um, so welcome. Thank you very much for having me. It's equally an honor. I'd like to start with your biography. I, I know you've done uh, some work with Hewlett Packard. I know you've done uh, work around the world with a variety of, of large corporations. Um, tell us how you ended up in the position you're in now. How did you end up founding uh, Resourceful Humans, and what did you have in mind when you did? Whew, how does how does any guy end up where he ends up? Daddy issues. Um, it's, it's usually the same. <laughs> no, um, I, I have to say I'm I'm blessed with a, a very successful father in the human resources domain. So, my dad was the European head of HR for HP for I think 35 years or something. So basically, wow. that what he says is one of the loves of his life is this this company, right? And so you have to imagine that. A big part of my vita is that I grew up with the concept of work as something that is loved and embraced and, and it gives you purpose and meaning in your life. So I had a dad who came home and he, he was energized. He loved talking about what they did. And uh, it, took, it took me a really long time to figure out that my dad, for example, wasn't an astronaut, right? Because he came home and <laughs> we had these posters of the space shuttle and, and, and he would talk about you know, how, how his company helped uh, the astronauts to calculate re-entry vectors and, and oh. I thought my, my dad's working for NASA right that is awesome and then basically uh, he gave me the reveal later that he was in HR and that he helped teams build calculators that helped the astronauts to uh, calculate the re-entry vectors and I thought well it's, HR must be really cool right if, if, if they do stuff like that but yeah. it, it was just this notion of somebody comes home and he loves what he does right and it, it it, that clashed so much with what I experienced later on in the, in the workplace that work was something to be endured. Work was something that is serious. You need to do it so you can provide, right? But the, this meaningfulness of work and the positive impact it can have on a family. I mean, uh, HP expatriated my father from, um, from Germany to Switzerland. I grew up in Geneva. I grew up in different countries. I, I learned different languages and there was just this incredible intimacy to this HP way, which informed a lot of what we do now with, with the RH way, right? Because, you know, there's very simple things like they had these annual barbecues where they would invite all the employees and the, the managers had to cook for the employees. They had to literally flip the burgers. It was like this, this symbol that Bill and Dave, the founders of, of Hewlett Packard, they were there and they were flipping burgers yeah. for the employees. And they said, we're here in service of you because what you guys do is awesome. Right. And that, that was infused in me from the very beginning of my, of my life, not even my career, that this notion of leadership as a service leadership as a means to do something in the world that you're proud of. And, um, that, that's how it all started, right? And that was before I even started working. That was just 
kind of like uh, you know breast milk kind of stuff. And um, well, and that that's a remarkable thing. I think the stat is something like seventy eight percent of people, at least in the United States, I don't know the global stats, but it's 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 just a, a couple of clicks under eighty percent of the people in the United States that have jobs pretty much hate their jobs. Um, they find it tedious. They find their jobs boring. Um, they find that they are certainly not life-giving. They are life-draining. So it, it's, uh, it's, it's quite a thing to hear your experience seeing your dad coming home yeah. thrilled to, to be at work. Um, I, I had the same thing. My, my, my dad owned his own uh, company and uh, a small uh, men's clothing store, uh, a series of stores. And um, he loved what he did. Uh, he's gone now, but he he loved what he did. I mean, he found fulfillment, challenge. Um, you know, it 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 was like we had another kid in the family, and he loved that child very much. And it uh, it it was very interesting to me then to meet people later that that found their jobs absolutely, you know, distasteful, and uh, couldn't wait to get out of there. So that, that's pretty formative. And it's great to, you know, it, sometimes people always say, well, yeah, but you know, all these grandeur and you, everybody has to change the world. It doesn't have to be that. It can be a clo- clothing store, as you say, something sure. like that. You know, you, you can find meaning and, 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 and do that with a craftsmanship uh, and, and purpose. It doesn't have to be the space shuttle. It doesn't no. have to be Elon Musk's revolution of the, the <laughs> no. you know, automotive industry. It can be in a, in a very small, significant thing, but how you dedicate yourself to right. it makes all the difference. Yeah, right? it does. My, my, my grandfather was a milkman. He brought milk in a truck uh, to people's houses. And he did that for like 40 years. And he loved it. He loved it. He found a fantastic way to get to know people, to serve them well. And there's one way to look at him and to say, well, he was, you know, the guy was a milkman. But uh, yeah, his, his, he found a vocation. He found a calling in that. It, it is really fascinating. I think one of my struggles in coming becoming a, a professional if you want was that as much as a lot of people have problems relating to that concept of how do we work in a different kind of manner more participatively and how do we activate people's potential i really had trouble relating to the current status quo of of the world of work right so i was such a misfit in the way that i was brought up that um whatever my instincts and my intuition told me about work people tried to sort of condition me back to um come on you know get 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 your feet back on the ground you know all all this kind of nonsense and the fluff that you have in your head that is that is illusions you know that's a utopia you can't you can't get there as such a remote and unique place that you you come from and there was always this inner rebellion of no that can't be right that it was actually quite simple what, what the HP way did, right? The, the way to treat people with respect, to be very clear about what entrepreneurial path are we on, how do we make our money, and this, this very simple notion. There's this fantastic video online, it's called the HP Origins, and they interview Dave Packard, and he says, you know, it's, you, you, you just used that phrase to say it was another child in the family, right? And he said, all we wanted to do was to make a big company feel like a family, and as soon as you give people... A, a feeling and a say in in what the strategy of the company is, they'll be so much more effective in implementing that strategy. That is such common sense, right? But we right. we lose that so quickly in the scaling and size of companies and in the race for profits. It's it's amazing and breathtaking because we think it can't possibly be true. 
Yeah, exactly. And this is sometimes the steps to get to that kind of management are trivial, absolutely trivial. And people are always looking for the secret sauce and the magic ingredient and give us the method and teach us agile. And, and it must have been Six Sigma. Now it's now it's something else. And, right. and you're like, you know, there's some very basic leadership behavior. And you've, you've featured some of those fantastic minds on your program, like, like David Marquet, right? The, the submarine commander yeah. who basically said, I gave my people intent and I got out of their way. Right. And they stepped up with responsibility. You step up. You will also at some point mess something up, but not more or less than you would in the other system of command and control, right? But Certainly. It, 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 it it's is hard. It, it, it seems like the key move is, is recognizing human dignity. When you start with human dignity, good things happen. But the minute you take dignity away and you impersonalize people and you take something of their humanity away from them, um, I, I get why it's appealing to do so, to treat people like machines. Uh, but the moment you do something uh, like that, something terrible has happened, and you might not even notice it. Well, I think the what I find rather fascinating is that, I mean, we, we kind of put it in the title of our company, right, where we said, I, I've always been a human resources professional, so I'm third generation. You can imagine the dinner conversations we had when I said <laughs> we'd rather we'd be better off without HR. And my grandfather and my father looked at me like, the devil, we've bred the devil. Right, you know? right. Yep. Um, and, and all I wanted to say is that it's basically <laughs> a, a kick in the butt of the profession to say, as HR professionals, we're responsible to unleash the potential of organizations to propose a different model of running organization, which is based on a human system, a humanistic mindset, which leads ultimately to a lot more sustainable profit than the very short-sighted whip-leash approach, right? But uh, uh, it is fascinating that when you challenge people with this notion of think about them as, as, as resourceful humans rather than human resources, and they go, yeah, come on now, you've rebranded it, what's the big deal, right? right. And you say, no, it, it's a fundamental difference, that it's not a number on a spreadsheet that you shift from one project to the other, but you ask them. You ask them what project would you rather take part on, and it, I mean, you know, when we put this in, in in real life context, we just started a project with um, with a large consultancy, a global brand. Screw it, it's Accenture. So, um, <laughs> and and they had this fantastic notion of saying um, we we want to have a completely diverse workforce, right? So we want to recruit uh, at least fifty percent women, so we represent. The diversity of the world and what right. we should have in our in our company, right? And then the, then the question comes: How can you do that in a company, in in a even in a sector that prides itself on being always on for the client? But you women at some point in their lives will naturally have different needs when they have children, and they might want to settle in one place, and they can't go to Frankfurt, Shanghai, New York, Paris, Tokyo. Um, so how do you you know how do you bring those two things together, which seem to be polar opposites of I need to provide this for my work, and yet I want to allow this for the right reasons of I want women in my workplace, and I can't say you can't have children if you work here, right? right. But then the question is, well, why don't you make them the solution and say, here's what we say we want to give to our clients, and here's the conundrum: how would you guys solve that? Right, mm -hmm. and the the amazing thing is that as soon as you involve people in coming up with a solution, they will. If you try to come up with a solution for them, you make them the numbers on the spreadsheet. Right, 
and it, it's it's trivial, right? But it's always leaders are flabbergasted by this uh, immense creativity that comes from people as soon as they're involved in the process. And I and I think your your key word here is is democratic leadership or uh, participative leadership. Um, Talk to us more about when did that occur to you? When, when, where did you see that? I mean, I know you saw that in HP with your dad. When did it occur to you that um, involving people in solving the, their own problems uh, rather than, than dictating to them, where did that become a live, real thing for you? It, it, it is a fascinating question that um, I've asked myself and I've asked leaders around me, like uh, David, uh, for example, what made you do what you did, right? And usually it's moments of crisis, you, moments when you, you hit your limit. Um, I, I became the first HR head of uh, Europe's largest video game company, Crytek. And I, I, was, I was young, um, I, I was cocky. I, I thought, you know, I, wisdom, I had it by the spoon, right? I was just, <laughs> I, w- I was the best thing since sliced bread and I came in there and I was gonna prove everybody that HR is just awesome. And um, my first day on the job, I talked to one of the development leads from a game project and I said, Jan, what can I do for you? What would be the best thing I could do for you? I'm, I'm, I'm here, I'm heaven sent. And he says, you know, the best thing would be you get out of my way. <laughs> Stop you know, asking like, dumb questions. Yeah, exactly. You're already wasting my time right now. Uh, if if I could invest that time in making a better game, I'd be better served. So what I need is less HR. If I needed no HR, if, if this organization were as simple as possible, that I could do my job with my people and no blockages, no nonsense, no bullshit here, right. that would be perfect. If you can do that for me, I'll kiss your feet, right? So... I, I went back to my team, and obviously I wasn't elated. That was, an, that was not an inspirational moment for me, right? No. I slammed the door, and I you said, need to translate that message into something else. <laughs> <laughs> and I was lucky enough that I had a fantastic team around me who helped me turn that around and kind of jujitsu it from a moment of complete defeat and, and ego crushing to why don't we make this our mission, right? Because. We, we had acted in a very traditional human resources framework of annual reviews of, of waterfall project management, like it's as classic and as good as HR got, right? Sure. We were, you have all the management structures in place. You do what the textbooks tell you to do. Absolutely. We, we were all little Dave Urich champions of human resources, right? Mm-hmm. And we were confronted with a completely project-driven, agile super interdisciplinary organization that moved light years faster than we did in our little human resources office. And we were, a, a, we were standing a part of it. We were not integrated into it, right? We had no idea what they were talking about when they said, uh, we're working on our backlog and the next sprint is this and that and this. And for mm-hmm. us, it's gibberish, right? right? So the first thing we had to accept was we knew nothing. And I mean, you, you were just talking about this, the sort of a humble approach to say, I have to go back to being a learner. I don't know what's going on here. I don't know this submarine, right? I have no idea. Whatever I do makes things worse. The best I can do is stay in my office at this point, but I'm not adding value. So a summary sentence here, uh, the first part of HR, uh, uh, the first part of dealing with human beings the way they ought to be dealt with, the way they need to be dealt with, the way they were built to be dealt with, starts with humility. And dialogue, yeah. Yeah. And I think this is 
as soon as you engage them like that, and I actually went back to Yanlen and I said, look, our first conversation made me feel like I want to go and hang myself. And he said, well, that was not my intention. I just wanted you to get out of my way. And when you hang, you're in my way, right? So, um, um, and he gave me a very simple task and he said, you know, one of the problems in the video games industry is that they eat sloppy food. So they all get fat and that's not good for productivity either. So he says, we have free Coke and and, then free Sprite and everything in, in, in the cafeteria. Could you see that we have some decent water and some good fruit juice and stuff like that? Hmm. And, and so my very first strategic wow. task as one of the <clears throat> head of HR of, of the most important video game companies in the world was fruit juice. Right. <laughs> and I obviously thought this was completely b- b- below me, right? And I, again, I spat it to my team like, can you believe what he asked me to do? And they took it. And they the next day... They put fruit juice in the cafeterias and really good one, locally, organically sourced, yep. like all the right thing, right? Yeah. And um, so 48 hours later, Jan comes to me, to my office, and everybody's like, no game development director has ever entered this office. What is happening? You know, mm-hmm. the, the business is engaging us. And he said, I want to tell you two things, right? First of all, not, I've worked many companies and never has HR done what I wanted and wow. never have they managed to do it within 24 hours. And obviously, I took all the credit that my team deserved. And, and, said, and yes, turns out you were brilliant. <laughs> we live to serve. What do you think, right? And he said, oh, you, just, you just passed my first test of just giving me what I want and not thinking for me what I might need, but I don't know yet because I'm too stupid. So let's talk about what my team might need next step forward, right? Wow. And then that's how it came together in, in terms of, of dialogue. And he said, you know, why don't you make HR the way we make games, why don't you treat our culture as if it were a product? So if we think of it as a product, what will be the title that you want to release in four years? What's, what's the perfect game that we can make here? Sure. And that's how this led into the, the complexity of a, of a computer games company. We have programmers, musicians, creatives, uh, artists, uh, all these people. So we basically have... You have dreamers and people with Asperger's syndrome, right? You have them all yeah. in one room and they need to talk to each other. Right. We said, we, you cannot steer that. You cannot control that chaos. The best thing you can give it is a framework in which they can organize themselves. And the only framework we knew for that at, at the time, you know, that this was more or less 10 years ago before digital agile and all these, these were mm-hmm. no names at the time, mm-hmm. was democracy, right? So we said, why don't we create an entrepreneurial democracy where we make it clear what the bottom line needs to be because we still need to make money so we can pay the salaries, but we involve everybody in equal share. And the, the first thing we did was redesign the bonus system in that way to say it will not be the, the overlords determine who will get what bonus, but you guys will tell you how much money we have in the pot, how much we're making. It's a transparent calculation. You can see that, how much we made with the latest title. Um, how you distribute this money, we will offer you a couple of ways to do that. Um, but ultimately, it's up to you. Suddenly, you had solved the problem. You were not managing it any, anymore because whatever they were arguing with wasn't you anymore. You just gave them a space to be adults. Now, you, re- you realize that that's terrifying, right? I mean, to, to the HR people to think, uh, you know, here's our financial performance, which many of the people that are listening work in publicly traded companies, so they 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 know at least some perspective on the on the financial performance. But to say to a group of people or a team, "Here's a bucket, figure it out," that's pretty scary. 
You know, the funny thing is that, I mean, I worked at eBay before and we had the bell curve, right? So in, in the evil way, you always do it the same way. You have to distribute the money anyways in a way that is completely counter to the system and you artificially try to distribute it to satisfy a bell curve, mm-hmm. right? Now, all you're saying is that there will be a natural bell curve usually, but you guys create it. And what you can, you can look at it before and after, like before you try to do it for the team, and when the team did it themselves, it, 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 it is amazing that the productivity just goes up. It's it, the levels of people engagement. And I mean, you, you were just talking about um, the numbers, you know, when you look at the Gallup scores for people engagement or how little they identify with their work or how little right. they care for the strategy. And suddenly people go, come back to you and they say, actually, for me to do this responsibly, there's a couple of factors I need I need to know about that I currently have no visibility on or no understanding of. Mm-hmm. I, it becomes a pull rather than a push, right. Right? right? And suddenly as an HR professional, you're in a much different position because you satisfy a demand rather than pushing something onto them that they don't care about. So is, is part of your role now getting companies uh, to understand this? I mean, you're, <clears throat> you're constantly working as a consultant, helping companies understand this, how much pushback are you getting? How much eye rolling are you, how much of the, yeah, I'm, I'm sure that sounds like a neat little thing that, that, you know, may or may not work. Are you getting pushback? Are you getting buy-in? Are you getting raised eyebrows? What's the reaction to, to this approach to, uh, to, to human beings? You know, there's this great quote, which has been attributed to many, great people. I don't know who originally said it, but it was first they fight you. No, first they ignore you, then they fight you, and then they agree with you. Right. Um, and I think we finally reached reached a stage where they, they stop fighting with us. I think right now you have the really large companies like General Electric's abolishing performance reviews, right? Mm-hmm. I think this has sunk in the mainstream that the thing we had before there's a model drift. It doesn't work anymore. We haven't quite figured out what the new thing is yet, but we've acknowledged that doesn't work, right? Um, that doesn't mean that for the past five years we haven't been incredibly lonely as, as yeah. going out there and saying, yeah, we figured that out first, and nobody, everybody was like, you're crazy. Um, the good thing that we had going for us was technology, right? So what we had in the video games industry was a very keen sense of, hacking games, right? The, the, the first thing that these guys did when we came up with this new bonus system was they tried to take it apart, right? They wanted to see what were the limits of, of this new system that we <laughs> implemented. So sure. where are the fences, right? Absolutely, right? Yeah. And this is fine. Testing the limits is an essential part of creating a new system. It's, it's like growing up, right? That's what yep. your three-year-old does. He sees, how far can I push my dad before he says you're grounded? Right. Um, so what we did was we created technological solutions that basically hack culture, which was good for us because it took us kind of like out the out of the firing line. It gave them a tool to um, practice this new kind of management with and establish their own perimeters, right? So they can level up in a way. So are, are you actually talking about software here? What? what? Yeah, yeah. So okay. let me give you an example. So yeah. one of the things we came up with was. Um, this, this very basic notion of leaders should not tell people what to do. So let's go one step back. We say the leader ultimately sets the culture. It's not the system. It's not the tool. How the leader behaves 
sets the culture, right? So the leader changes his behavior, the culture automatically changes with that. So if you stop telling your people what to do, and you rather ask them what should be done, and you said, here's the, here's the intent, here's the framework, here's what I think we should achieve in terms of a vision, what would you do to get there? Do you even agree with this vision? So how can we put this in a software that very simply hacks that behavior into a leader and his team? Interesting. And uh, what, what we did, what we came out with is... Um, a tool that we call network and it, it does a very simple thing. So you log on and it's basically a visual representation of your company. So you're a dot at the center of a blank canvas and then you will say, I want to add a contribution and a, a dialog box will pop up and it says, what do you want? What, what do you intend to contribute? And you give this a title and it's basically like a Kickstarter campaign, right? Mm -hmm. Say, I, I want to do, I want to start electric cars, right? Mm -hmm. And then it says, can you describe that a little bit for me? Yeah, electric cars, I want to have a, a premium sedan, blah, 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 reach 300 miles. And then it asks you, who would you like to do this project with, ideally? And you could say, for that, I would need Elon Musk, I would need Steve Jobs, I would need God knows who, right? right. And then at the very end, you say, uh, create contribution. And these people that you've invited get an invite that says, hey, Heiko wants to start a project and he has invited you to do that with him. Would you accept that or not? Do you have the time to do that or not? And if they click, yes, I would love to do that, then there's on that, on that canvas, on our screen, a, a literal visual connection between me and them and the contribution in the middle between us. So the, the teams are formed organically, <clears throat> but the other way around from usual. So I don't tell you what to do. Rather, I tell you what I'd like to achieve and you tell me if you would actually do that with me. Now, that seems com completely natural if you would start a company anew because that's how you recruit your people, right? You, mm -hmm. you give a passionate project and people say, that's awesome, I want to do that with you. But we don't do that in established companies anymore. But if you want to kind of re-recruit your team, re-engage them, hack the behavior, you treat them as if they were free to completely say, no, that's nonsense, I don't want to do that with you. How do you, how do you match that? With uh, the company, you know, BHAGs, the big, hairy, audacious goals or the top rocks for that year or that quarter, how, how do you match what the company needs with the, what, what the uh, people want to do? That, that is actually a, a big one, right? Because the first thing that you get with this approach, well, first transparency you get is the natural speed of the company, right? I mean, the cynicism that we keep mentioning with the low levels of engagement come from our incredible skill to wrap ever-increasing goals into fancy language, mm -hmm. right? So we say, now we're doing something really meaningful, and we figured out that people want meaning, so... Uh, the, the, the 20 billion by 2020, we'll give it a campaign and we'll call it, how, how do we do this and that? At the end of the day, it's the same old, same old. We need to increase productivity. We need to lay off people and um, get more from the same to benefit our shareholders, sure. right? So this is, and people react to that with whatever. It's just, it's just another PowerPoint presentation. It's just mm -hmm. the same thing wrapped in different clothes, right? Mm -hmm. So what you have to do is to really go back to what you were mentioning in the beginning, dear leader, dear CEO, are you humble enough to actually engage with your organization and say, 
if if I wanted your all, if I really wanted your hundred percent, I need to allow you to tell me how much we think we're currently capable of. So if I tell you not a KPI, don't tell me what my what the KPI is. Let's let's take the Elon Musk example, right, and say I want to I want to change the world to sustainable transport, zero emissions, and for that we would start with one model, the Model S. Mm-hmm. Can you deliver that? And then the teams will come and say. Yeah, we can deliver that. It, it will be. It would take three years, and the thing would cost ninety thousand dollars. And then you don't go back and you say, "I want you to do it in two, and I want it to cost seventy thousand. But you say, "Okay, do it," right? Because they've told you what they're capable of. Mm-hmm. In in the process, you can then go in and say, "Hey, can we improve this? Can we improve that? What do you think?" You can challenge them, right? But you don't hold them to an artificial standard that is dictated from external. You say, "What are you capable of?" You give them a, a meaningful deadline to say, if we don't manage it in 50 years, we're all dead because the, the planet will collapse or something like that. But right. you, you, you let them decide the speed. I mean, this is nothing other than what we did in the video games industry where you say, look, guys, we just figured out that you're the masters of your own bonus. So you have a stake in this, right? You also have a say in this in, in terms of how do we make this game? Now, of course, I would love a 25-hour gameplay triple a quality and i want it under the christmas tree this year but we can't have it all we can't have the quality we can't have the speed and and everything else so the entrepreneurial decision is we have to make a trade-off right so where would you make that trade-off guys because you're not just employees you're also consumers so we want you to be able to create a product in the way that you would speak proudly of consuming it right so what would it be and usually what you find is that as much as people, when they first do this RHA management, take a step back. They, they kind of test the limit of would he, do, would, would he really let us do less, right? Can, right. can we step back and focus on, on, on the quality, for example, or on consolidation in terms of recruitment? And when the leader says, yes, if that's what you think is the right thing to do, you will, in 99% of the cases, see that the next step is an increase in output and increase in productivity because they have the stake in it they have the say in it and they have the competence mm-hmm. and suddenly they have the trust from the leader right and they believe that wow the guy actually or the lady actually gave us the leeway to decide and they step up it's it's quite amazing so the moment you put this in place expect pushback expect somebody to to you know kick the tires and find out what <laughs> whether now what you're saying is actually true how far can they push the limits? Could they slow down or could they Actually, go faster than you want to? And they're going to find that out. If you get, when you get pushback, you've succeeded, right? Because mm-hmm. what you see is that they, they trust the leader enough that there's a safe space to push back. Well, you know, we had this fantastic example with, uh, with, with T-Mobile, right? Where we, we did a very simple exercise. We, we put the CEO in the middle of the room and then we had an interdisciplinary a group representing the whole of, of the T-Mobile organization, cross-hierarchical, cross-function. And we said, we want you to position yourself in the room as close as you feel to the vision of the CEO and as close as you feel to being able to execute on it, right? Hmm. And uh, we had people leaving the room. We had people <laughs> standing by the window looking out. We had people hugging the wall. It wow. was it was a, a, a physical disaster, right? It was, yeah. it, it, we had to actually take a break for an hour to, you know, to, to, to kind of like get back in, the, in, a, in a place where we could work together. 
But what we told them was, hey, Mark, this is great. This is great because they showed you how confused they are. They have the trust in you that they can open up to that. They could have just formed a ring around you and said everything's honky-dory and let's just go and been none the wiser, right? right? But now we know where we stand. The next thing we ask them is, what would you need to make one step towards him? What so do you need from him as a leader, right? You took something that was known to everybody and made it obvious, physically obvious. And, and the physical experience for the CEO was shocking, but as right. soon as he understood that they trust me to shock me and they, they don't fear to be fired, I have a team I can work with here, right? Right, right. Fascinating. Absolutely. And it's every time, you know, every time, every time this is different. Every culture is different, which is why the, the, the way we've kind of structured our approach is, again, very much inspired from video games, is what we call a sandbox, right? We give certain principles and certain tools, but there's no method. There's no one way that you can apply to all and say, this is the best practice. We've done this at T-Mobile. Clearly, this fits for Accenture and GE, and you just need to follow the five steps. That's nonsense, right? That, that doesn't work, but there are certain principles, certain framework uh, pointers that are universal in this. Why do you, th- why do you think that's the case? I, I'm, I'm thinking of several companies that I've, that I've watched for a while, um, they started local and they are now global and they've got, <clears throat> you know, north of a hundred million in sales and they're, uh, they're in four or five global spots. There are a couple of them. Um, the overwhelming challenge is to start thinking about standing, uh, standard operating procedures. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. You, you, you go from, um, a great deal of autonomy and a great deal of authority in small teams to suddenly, you know, people on four continents need to react and behave exactly the same way. What, what is it that, why is that? What's so attractive about that? You know, I don't even think that the, the notion of, uh, a baseline, a standard operating procedure is a bad one per se. The question is, is it on, imposed on me or have I co-created it? Oh, okay. Um, it, it, there, there are two examples. One is the, the supermarket, uh, supermarket chain here in, um, in Europe, which probably is a little bit like Whole Foods in the U.S., um, what they did was it, it, it's based very much on a, a humanistic management philosophy. And um, it was a fascinating podiums discussion where the, the CEO of this company stood up and he talked about how they gave autonomy to a, each retail store. Say, so of course, we have some franchise guidelines, how we brand ourselves. So mm-hmm. consumers recognize they're walking <clears throat> in the same company, right? But right. How, you, how you work inside the company, how you stock the shelves, how you set up the, the store that is left up to the employees who run this as owners of that store. And there was this uh, guy from Zara, from the clothing company, and um, he said, this is all bullshit, right? This is, this is a 1 billion euro market, and you, you want to win it. And the guy said, no, what we, what we do is we give our people the autonomy to work that they love working, and that's why we will win the market. Mm-hmm. And the other guy says, tomatoes, tomatoes, you're saying the exact same thing as me. And he says, no, I'm saying the exact opposite. opposite of you. Yeah. But the fact that you don't understand this, it doesn't make, there's no point for us to argue. And he gave him an example, and he said, look, just walk away with this. So what happened here is that 
um, if you take a, a Starbucks or, or some of the competing brands that they have, they're extremely clear on how they have to use floor space so they can stock the shelves to a certain space and that's how the supply chain is managed and blah, 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 blah. And he says, we don't have that. So one of the store managers said, what I see is that outside the moms, they always have to put their, their, their strollers, uh, park them outside. And when it's raining, they get wet and they have to carry their child uh, like sort of on their, on their arms, come inside, and then they can't properly shop. So what, what we'll do is we'll make the, the aisles wide enough so they can come in with the prams and they have the kids there and they are allowed to put the food in the stroller, right? And, and mm-hmm. they don't have to take a trolley for that. And uh, what, what they saw was suddenly they got a lot more uh, revenue because all the moms that networked worked so quickly that all the moms flocked to that brand, right? Mm. And said, we can go in there with the, with the, we don't get trouble for going in with the strollers. Right. Now the competing brands around them, they didn't have the liberty to do that. So the only thing they could do was build better rain protection outside. So the moms <laughs> could lock their troller, uh, right. strollers outside. They, they couldn't compete with that level of autonomy and they never won the mothers back. Right. Right. That is some, one of those very trivial things, which it wasn't profit-driven. These guys weren't looking like, what other customer f- segment could we seize? But it was common sense. Here's something that we could do. And hey, look, we actually got a lot of income through that. And it spread through the network because they just said, guys, here's what we did. Do you think that makes sense? And all the other uh, um, uh, franchise partners said, that's completely awesome. We'll do that as well. And suddenly it became a standard. Right. But not because it was imposed, but because it made sense. And it's by the same way, you know, I think if it is, I don't know, an SAP system or something that you suddenly have financial transparency on everything that's going on in your company, if you make this a, 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 a task force to say what would be the best thing for all of us to agree on that, it, it's a much better outcome than mm-hmm. to say our IT group will determine the best vendor, we'll have the right. usual process, and then we will tell you it's SAP anyways. Right? <laughs> it's, you know, we know the answer to the question already. We're just going to ask it to make you feel good. Exactly, and that people hate that game. And that this is something, this is again, you know, a lot of what we're doing is inspired from very early management from Silicon Valley, that this, this notion of off the people, for the people, by the people. Yeah. Right? This is something that is basic human nature. I want to be heard, I, I want to give my best and then please somehow figure in my opinion into all of this. Yeah. Well, I, I, I warned you about this. Uh, every time we do a great mind series, I always ask our guest to tell me their favorite story. Um, it can be related to the work you can do. It can be completely unrelated to the work that you do. Um, so what's, what's one of your favorite stories? You, you know, I, I think, I, I would like to, to, this is a story I've never told anybody, I think, in the context of, of, of any of these kind of conversations. But there's a person I really want to honor in this Great Mind series. And um, that is when, when I worked, my very first job as an, as an intern um, at Hewlett Packard in the production. So my, my dad had this notion of, even though we were well off, and he, he, he wanted me to start in the trenches, he wanted me to go my own way and not start uh, at, in a management position or something like that, which of course I completely resented when I was that age, but now I see the wisdom in it. Right. And, and your kids will hate you for it later, but anyway. Absolutely. It's yeah. a, just a little bit of history repeating. <laughs> um, and um, so I, I was in, in production of some analytic measurement tool 
called the Apollo at the time. And they had this very modest uh, production plant in, in the south of Germany. And you, you would rotate through different stations. So every three days you would work on a different part of this assembly process. Uh, so you, you don't completely, you know, brain freeze, um, but you actually always go to the next step. And you were assigned a mentor as, as an intern who basically helped you to get the groove and showed you every step and so you don't mess up this analytics thing. And there was a, an Italian, uh, Italian immigrant called Eugenio Battaglia, and he was in his 50s, and we, we talked about Italian cooking and everything, a fantastic, wonderful, warm man. And he wasn't someone who had read any management books or anything, mm -hmm. right? He wasn't a, a great thinker and philosopher, but I've never, ever learned more about management and great work than what this guy set me up with, because it was very trivial. Every station we rotated together, and he had done this job 25 years. So he had built this, this little device for, I think, 10 years already. Hmm. He had done each of these stations probably more than a thousand times. But every time we rotated to a new station, he came up with one more minute little detail that he could improve for the person who would follow us, right? Would it be... A, we would have to put the screws somewhere that are easier to reach while mm -hmm. we do two things together. It was always thinking about the other, always making mm. it better for the next. And this was something where I, I was like, Eugenio, why the hell are you doing this? You know what? Of course, you'll benefit when you come around in, in four, four stations. But and he said, you know, this is it, this is a great company. We, we get free free lunch we get bread in the morning with sausage i i want to give back a little of what these guys have built here and the, the fact that i'm in bread and butter i can bring a salary home and this is the least i can do i i give back to the next guy who comes after me mm. and i think this is something where we've we've always tried to or I, i've always tried to do no matter what you do do that think about the next person who might handle this the next person who might touch this because um that yeah. way maybe you pay it forward a little bit and you pay back for the good things that you've received and this is uh, all due to that one man uh Eugenio, who i have no idea what he does now probably huh. still sitting there still improving things but he really became one of my heroes that's fantastic <clears throat> and it's a, a great illustration of small things make a profound difference and you know somebody's always watching what you do and thinking about what you do and here's this guy in his 50s working with a, what, you're probably early 20s or late teens at the time. Yeah. Having yeah. no idea that uh, all these years later you're going to be remembering that moment when it occurred to you that uh, he was treating you and, and, and the people before him and behind him in a profoundly dignified way. And he was always like my secret kung fu master, you know, like the one thing that you go back in your mind and you said, yeah. back in the day is Eugenio taught me the way off, you know? Yeah. 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 Well, Heiko, thank you so much for your time today. We, uh, on the Great Mind series, we really appreciate uh, sharing your thoughts. Again, Heiko Fisher is the um, founder and CEO of Resourceful Humans, and uh, we encourage you to check out his work and check out his website. So again, thank you, sir, for your time. Thank you very much for having me. It was a pleasure. Thanks for listening to the latest episode of the Great Mind Series podcast with me, your host, Dr. Jerry Zanstrom. Please make sure to subscribe to our show as well as share the word with your coworkers and friends. Again, the Great Mind Series podcast is brought to you by Innoversity. 
to learning experts.